the giant Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo, and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives, and giant thinkers. G'day, Giants. Episode number 30 is now live on the air. I'm Ram Castillo, and this is the Giant Thinkers Podcast. We have a sensational guest today. She is a Scottish designer, innovator, entrepreneur, and TEDx speaker, and describes herself as an ambassador of people. Her popular service design blog, redjotter.com, has attracted over 350,000 readers. When she was 23, she co-founded Snook, Scotland's leading and award-winning service design and social innovation agency, which uses design to improve public services. Management Today named her as one of the UK's top 35 businesswomen under 35, and Elle also featured her as one of 30 women under 30 changing the world. She is now the head of service design for Good Lab, who collaborate with 12 of the UK's top charities, including Oxfam and UNICEF, to radically design and test new methods of fundraising. Plus, she is also the founder of Hashtag Upfront, an initiative which challenges the lack of diversity in speaking events by inviting speakers to share their stage. Be prepared to be immersed in her unapologetic vision of a better world and her relentless drive to fighting for it. Some of the things we spoke about include why fulfillment and finding meaning look different for every person, how the design industry and education providers can better work together, and why she believes that confidence is the key to unlocking most problems we face. Now, before we dive in, allow me to share a quick story which occurred in 2003. A gentleman named Mike accidentally saved over an invoice and lost his work. Then and there, the inspiration for a now global company called FreshBooks was born. Eight years later, and over 5 million users strong, FreshBooks has grown to be the number one cloud-based invoicing software for small businesses. Perfect for freelancers out there, such as myself, easily send invoices, track time, manage expenses, and get paid online. Tina Roth-Eisenberg, founder of Creative Mornings, also known as Swiss Miss, said, it saves me a huge amount of time. Forbes said it is incredibly user-friendly, and CNET said it's refreshingly straightforward. It's been featured on Fast Company, Mashable, TechCrunch, and USA Today. Some of my favorite features personally include creating and sending an invoice in under 30 seconds. Your clients can pay you online using their credit card, and it even shows you whether or not a client has looked at the invoice you've emailed. FreshBooks is offering a month of unrestricted use to all Giant Thinkers listeners totally free right now. To claim your free month, go to freshbooks.com slash giant and enter giant thinkers in the how did you hear about us section. Really important. 
Once again, that's freshbooks.com slash giant. There's a clickable link in this post. And now I introduce to you the super intelligent and wildly thought-provoking Lauren Curry. Lauren Curry, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's very nice to be here. It's a pleasure. It's a, it's an honor to have you on the show, uh, not only because of your incredible accolades and credentials, but also because of what you stand for in using design to improve social change, education, and entrepreneurship, which I'm a huge fan of that. We definitely cross over there. Yeah, well, I try. Yeah, yeah. I um, should mention that Kimberly Crofts from Meld Studios um, connected us via Twitter, uh, the power of Twitter there. Um, and uh, she's connected me with many other female guests on the show. So shout out to her. So let's dive into the first question. It's a little icebreaker. Mm-hmm. Your one is, if you were stuck in an elevator for two hours, who would you want stuck in there with you? Good question. So <laughs> if I was stuck in an elevator, I would like to be stuck in there with Cindy Gallup. Okay. And Cindy Gallup is the founder of an initiative called Make Love Not Porn. And she used to be very senior influential director in the branding world. And she is now dedicated to changing the conversation the narrative and society's relationship with sex and I think she is a formidable force that is very dedicated to problems solving problems that matter so she is pro-sex pro-porn and pro knowing the difference she talks a lot about things like how to have conversations about sex with kids around the dinner table how can we make sex socially acceptable and socially shareable? And I just think it's a very timely, needed intervention and that her as an individual, she and she just really inspires me. So that's who I would choose to be stuck in a lift with. Wow. Have you ever met her? I haven't, but we've recently ah. became Twitter friends. So there you go. I'm hoping that one day we will meet. Maybe it's in a lift. <laughs> love it so um where would you say your expertise lies so i am good at developing ideas businesses and networks that encourage people to take action i'm good at making people do things and actually just this week my friend described me as a tactician and having spent some time looking up that word and talking to other people, I I feel very proud of that. But I think it does capture really where my what I'm best at, which is planning how to get stuff done, accomplishing goals and bringing networks and communities of people along that journey. Love that. Love that. And it sounds like there is um, quite a fair bit of leadership in there as well, which really interests me. Um, so can you tell us a bit about your childhood and how you grew up? Yes. So I grew up in a small town called Kilmarnock. And Kilmarnock is 20 miles south of Glasgow, got a population of about 50,000. And I grew up with my mum and dad and my younger brother, Jonathan. And I had a very happy 
peaceful childhood, uh, very musical. My dad played in a band my whole life and my brother and I started playing instruments very early on. So I grew up in a house where my alarm clock was my dad singing and playing Elton John. Um, my mum has always been a craftswoman. So throughout my whole life, she had her day job. And then on the side, she would create her own enterprises, whether that be making jewellery, making rag dolls, making dried flowers to match people's home decor. And it's only now on reflection that I can I can see how that was such a big part of me growing up and that there was always a workshop and she was making and selling and and buying and yeah that that was a big part of it were you were you always a curious kid would you say yes and I I think I think all children are curious I think the the challenge we all face is how to remain curious and my mom always she tells a, a story that I love about one night I came running down the stairs and asked her if if I was able to be a newsreader and an artist when I grew up. And she always said yes. And she always encouraged me and made me believe that I could be anything that I wanted to be and anything was possible. Yeah, love that. Um, now, so Glasgow, uh, Scot- Scottish, there you go. You're, um, yes. you're Scottish born and, born and bred. Um, tell us a bit about this, uh, this haggis dish, this national haggis dish. Have you tried it? obviously you have yes of course so you traditionally have haggis with neeps and tatties which is turnip and potatoes we we traditionally have that meal on what we call burns night and that is the celebration of the scottish poet robert burns that's his birthday and we we will often, whether that be a small gathering in families or a much wider gathering that involves communities and neighbours and big parties, we come together to eat haggis and read the, the poetry of Burns. And we have a traditional dance called a keli. And it's, it's something that I really love. I did host my own Burns supper once when I lived in Glasgow about 2009. And a lot of his work is known for being very humble and real and very grounded in human relationships and this notion that we're all equal and everybody's the same and we need to really appreciate what we've got and if you're feeling helpless, help somebody. And I find his messages very aligned with you know, what I care about and the values that I think a lot of people that I work with have. And so yeah, it's a great excuse to eat haggis. And veggie haggis is also is also a good choice. So definitely recommend it. Very good. Very good. I personally haven't had it yet, but I'd prefer to have it in Scotland because I haven't been to Scotland either. So <laughs> there you go. Well, you can do that or I can post you some. I have posted <laughs> some of my friends in Sweden before. It can be done. Have you really? I might take you up on that offer. It might take a while <laughs> since I'm in Australia, but that's uh <laughs> That's good. So, Lauren, what does better look like to you? So, I understand why you've asked me this question because I talk a lot about believing in better and that my unwavering determination that things can be better is is what drives me. But I have been recently reminded that I believe in better is the strapline of Sky Television. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so I might have to revisit that. Um, but when I think about what better means to me right now, the first aspect is definitely around confidence. I think confidence is crucial for each and every one of us to be the very best we can be, to identify what we are good at, to have the confidence to create a vision of who we want to be and where we want to be. And I ask myself the question of what what if everyone was more confident? What would a more confident country, nation look like? It would be better, I think. Mm. And the other angle that feels very, very timely right now is democracy. <laughs> yeah. So there, better democracy to me is about every single one of us, regardless of gender, class, race, occupation, being engaged in civic issues and being engaged in politics, having an awareness and an interest and a genuine curiosity in what is happening in our world, in our place of work, in our neighbourhood, in our streets, in our cities, in our world, and everyone having the the willingness and the confidence and the appetite to take action on that. So it wouldn't be a question of, are you going to vote? Because everybody would vote. And it wouldn't be a question of, are you going to march? Because everybody would march. And everybody would feel that engagement because democracy would be something that spoke to that something that they felt their voice was heard within and something that they felt engaged in. And right now, we have just seen a crisis of democracy where people in the UK voted for something and then said, oh, but I didn't think my vote would count. Mm. And now we are in a, a hot mess of what the future of our country will look like. So a better democracy is definitely something that's very much on my mind right now. Yeah, and I think um, it's it's so important that you bring this up because, um, as most of the listeners are uh, designers, creative people, um, I think we can both agree that designers have more influence than they've ever had, um, even in a reflective uh, narrative, as what with what you're saying um, now more than ever before. So, how might we design designers who are fit for purpose? who can push boundaries and can create relevant impact. So I think, first of all, it's about designers not siloing themselves as a community of designers and almost having this heroic sense of what it means to be a designer. Because really, this is about being a human being and how can people have more impact and how can people feel the power that they have and have the skills and the confidence to use that power to make things better. And I think designers can achieve that by getting rid of that heroic designer narrative that is that I think is very harmful, get rid of this obsession with entrepreneurship and and soul leadership and realize that actually we have to work 
And we are working in a system, in a very complex system, that is made up of a vast array of disciplines and expertise and knowledge. And that being a designer is no better or worse than any any other of those skill sets. But if that is the skill set and the and the craft that you acquire, then how can you ask more of what's possible instead of focusing on what's wrong and also realizing that not all problems can be fixed by design. I think designers are very guilty of thinking that we have the answer to everything and that our process is the solution to all the world's great causes. And I think that is very much not true. I think design is one of many processes and one of many skills that has to take take the responsibility for being the catalyst of all of those things working together much better in a system. So to answer your question more directly, that's about spending time with people who are not like you. That's about learning how to work in a team with people who see the world completely differently from you. So right now, traditional design education, you spend your time with other designers. And that is a fundamental flaw of education because that is not how the world works and that's not how problems get solved. More often than not, you're the only person in the room with your skill set. So it's about spending time with people who think differently from you and attracting different perspectives into your work. And you do that by showing your process, showing your work. I despair at the number of talented designers who keep their ideas to themselves, who don't blog, who don't have a website, whose Instagram is filled with beautiful food pictures. So I want to see your process. I want to see what's inside your mind. And if you put your work out there, you will naturally attract other people who are excited about the same thing as you. And hopefully people that span disciplines also span geographic locations, span ages, backgrounds. And that's when we're going to be most likely to solve problems. Yeah, that's uh, that's truly beautifully articulated um, with with what you were saying, I'm sure many of the listeners would be able to connect with that. A um, couple of things that just stood out was um, uh, I had a conversation with an emerging designer recently who has been living in Australia for a couple of years and uh, originally from Brazil. And her main vulnerability um, of part of the reason why she feels that she hasn't been um, getting uh, the job that she has really been looking for is uh, because she felt that her accent was a bit funny and um, she didn't have that um, that much to offer. And I kind of just flipped it on its head and just said to her, you need to embrace all of you in that mm -hmm. your vulnerability of what you think is vulnerable is actually a massive strength because as people in Australia are hiring Australians, there's an opportunity to hire a Brazilian right in front of them. And your mm -hmm. experience to bring that into the table would actually be a massive um, shift in, in what they're able to achieve with any, anyone that um, isn't you. So um, it was just that aspect of, um, of bringing different people into the mix, as you were saying, and exposure to other systems and other cultures, um, mm -hmm. which leads me to the next thing I interviewed, um, 
Kevin Lee, the um, global head of design for Visa. And he really spoke about experiences as you needing to experience them yourself. And how can you design to an experience or a process if you at least haven't um, exposed yourself to that? And a simple example he said was, you know, if you've got a product, but it's being made and shipped elsewhere, have you ever actually gone there and seen that product being shipped from the manufacturer, being put in the truck, being moved into another department and being made there? And then the next step, the next step, the next step, because what we experience as designers can often be just um, especially digital designers who are in the tail end of the execution, the visualization of that on an online shop. Um, and then mm-hmm. they've also got to brand that product and, and, and um, position it um, and create a story around that. So uh, I love everything you said there. Um, I'll move on to uh, the observation um, that I've personally had of uh, designers looking for more fulfillment in their jobs. Um, mm-hmm. It's certainly not enough to find it on weekends or after hours. Uh, and it must be embedded in the majority of what they spend their time doing. So where do you feel designers um, can feed their appetite for more meaningful work um, without starving themselves? So I think what you've just described of going to where going to where your, the problem is, and experiencing things is a really good thing to hold on to because it, it again reinforces this I think an important message of not being obsessed with shipping and building and making and making more noise, more mess, more I mean the world does not need any more startups. The world does not need any more design agencies. Cover your ears, Silicon Valley. Yeah, we don't need any more apps. We need to listen. And that is the one of the things that designers are best at. And I think that also answers as a part of how I would answer your question around fulfillment. And I think this is also a question that's not about designers, it's about people. Who do you who have you ever met that has said they don't want to feel more fulfilled by their work? Like that, that is a, hmm. a need and a desire that humans have. And I think one thing that we could do that would help us achieve that is stop putting ourselves under so much pressure, for example, to have a job that we love every day. You know, the, the narrative around design the life you love, um, you know, start start the side project that will fulfill your dreams and, and make you a happy person is very harmful because it's, I don't believe it's true. With any job, there comes things that are just a bit shit and things that are not fun and things that make you angry and make you lose your patience, but they still have to be done. And it's... It's about accepting that not everyone has to be an entrepreneur. Not everybody has to be writing books and building companies. Actually, it's more than enough to just do good work well, to turn up every day, to keep going, and to have that tenacity 
to make change. Now, that change might be a change you want to see in your local community centre. It might be a change you want to see in the huge corporate that you work for. It might be a change you want to see in the nursery that your niece attends. Yeah. But it's about having the having the long-term vision to see how you can contribute to making that change happen. So I do think things like side projects are a good opportunity to focus your energy and your time around things that make you angry. So what is the one thing that is keeping you up at night? What is the one thing that you get really cross about and that you want to fix? So I really try and I think it was Swiss Miss that I heard say this around complaining, that you're only allowed to complain so many times and then you have to try and fix it. Yeah, And I think that's a, a really good way of finding more purpose or finding more meaning and also realizing that that might be something that lasts 24 hours or that might be a short project that you do once a week for six months. It doesn't need to be something that's about this of huge scale and enormity of building a company or starting something big and scary yeah it's um it i love how you uh defined and um identified the difference between um doing what you love um and opening that that subject matter uh with the fact that it does require hard work in, in those um, moments. And just because you love it doesn't mean that it's going to be a walk in the park. Um, it reminds me of a blog post that I wrote um, uh, not too long ago um, about what does mastering design really mean? And I basically um, go into this dialogue where I've been seeing a lot of Instagram posts and quotes that say, stop doing shit you hate. And, mm. and I really wanted to clear that up with my point of view on that, which is, um, although it might be intended as motivational, um, I just think that in today's generation, it um, in context, it actually dismisses the benefits of struggle, adversity, and being uncomfortable as a good thing. And so I, I go into speaking about this whole topic, which I'm really passionate about as well, because, um, we have to equally understand the that those ingredients um, are required to uh, to to reach that level with which people long for. You know the thing that they want to do and design their life and um, to be really happy going into the job every day. Um, but I was basically saying that um, doing shit you hate is part of it. It's temporary, but it's required and. Um, Simon Sinek, many of you know his book, Start With Why. And he mm -hmm. basically said, um, working hard for something we don't care about is called stress. Working hard for something we love is called passion. And I think that was just more of a, um, a productive way of, of describing that. Um, because although, and if you really think about that, when you work on something day and night, day and night, um, do you want to? have lack of sleep? Do you want to have, you know, um, uh, all the things that come with that? Um, likely not, but 
there is something there that is bringing you on and it's that greater purpose. So I really think it's more about defining your why. And a lot of people, for example, um, when I speak to a lot of emerging designers, they don't really, they haven't really sat down and thought about it. Um, like why, why are you really wanting that so badly? And, Mm -hmm. and it's the whole asking three whys thing that really gets them to a place on the third why they're really just stumped. And, um, you know, I certainly was, was that, and, and I found that through conversations of, of others. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's where the longevity comes from, um, of, 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 yeah, you actually realize that you're just a a human in this world, um, accumulating lots of different, um, different, uh, perspectives, um, and, and making your own. Yeah. I think it's also really important to remember that if you don't have a why, that's okay. Mm. That most people yeah. don't have a why. And they they live happy lives. I think people actually find themselves in negative knots of this constant obsession of finding purpose, finding meaning, finding why. Where actually we, sh- we all just need to chill out a bit and realise that it will it will come or it won't come and and both of those things are okay and i think the narrative around you know the person who sleeps the least wins is extremely damaging <laughs> and i think the most mm. the best thing that any of us who want to make change happen can do is to look after ourselves and be kind to ourselves be kind to our bodies and our minds and get enough sleep and eat healthy and spend time with people that we love. And it does, it sounds, com- it sounds like common sense when I say it this way, but I think it's often very neglected. And I think the narrative around the life that one leads to reach success, in quotation marks, is actually very unhealthy. Mm. And you you very much tapped into uh what uh many people feel is a overpowering force which is comparing mm-hmm. what we're actually doing scrolling through feeds and reading everyone else's life is um we're comparing yeah and- it's horrible it's toxic and we are yeah. we're comparing ourselves to somebody else's uh showreel yeah. which is ridiculous and I think that's a responsibility that I take I try and take seriously is how I can show my vulnerability much more to you know the people who follow me or the people who are listening because it really <clears throat> it really struck me once when I cried in front of a group of students that I was teaching mm. And one of them spoke to me afterwards while I was still like <laughs> wiping tears and <laughs> snotting all over her and said, um, I didn't think people like you ever cried. <laughs> and it, it just really struck me because I cry all the time. Mm. And I have days where I think I can take over the world and I have days where I want to just watch Mad Men all day. Mm. And that's fine. And that's that works for me. And I think if if we all were much more open and transparent about 
our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities, then it it would help it would help us collectively move forward. Yeah, yeah, I um totally resonate with that. Um, so on that note, uh, where we can better bridge the gap between the design industry and education institutions, um, how how do you think? design industry and education institutions can better work together do you think so i think the first step is removing the us and them context i think both education institutions and the design industry are guilty of this they blame each other and they finger point and i think that's the opposite we need to work as one we need to work as one unit that has the responsibility of educating the next generation of designers and producing the next generation of of talent. So for practitioners, that is about giving up time and resource. I think recognising that every single one of us is a mentor. And I know that that feels strange for some people, but I say to everybody that I meet who asks me this question, it's like, you are a mentor. Like, Ram, you are a mentor. There are people listening to this who want to be like you. We want to learn, how did you end up here running a podcast? You know, people tell me that they want to be like me or they want to do something similar to something else I've done. And it's up to each of us to open up that process and make it really clear and easy to access our story and our journeys. And part of that is about being open and being approachable, mm. spending time in schools and universities Um, and for the institutions it's about working yeah working with the industry as opposed to against it and I think something that institutions are very guilty of is being you know we're going to do what is let's go and ask industry what they want okay let's do that that's bullshit. You should be challenging what industry say they want and you should be producing graduates who will put half of the industry out of business. Mm. Yeah, very, very great way of thinking about it, um, especially with the um, the mentorship, which I'm really passionate about. In fact, um, my book's about to launch um, in a couple of months called How to Get a Mentor as a Designer um, and followed uh, by a USA tour shortly after that at the end of the year. So um, I'm I, I'm incredibly um, passionate about um, the industry not going out there enough. Hence the the podcast existing, just bringing them closer mm-hmm. using the medium, which is so accessible to anyone and everyone, um, and really trying to crack that um, that sort of, um, area, which can seemingly seem unreachable. It's like, how do I even get in touch with that director or designer or, um, you know, that particular creative that I, that I look up to and, and, you know, it, we, we follow people's lives as if we know them personally, but, um, wouldn't it be great if they actually spoke, um, spoke back to you and, did things around your needs. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of this, um, really is what you touched on, especially the confidence. Like, I don't think 
I don't think people, um, they understand the importance of, um, of finding a mentor, for example, um, they understand what it can give them, but they don't necessarily know how to navigate their way to mm. what's in line with, with what they feel, um, is, is of interest to them. Yeah. Well, there's a really good example, right? So you're you're just about to publish a book. So I know tens of people who want to publish a book and they don't know how. <laughs> so it's like, how do you how do you open that up? Mm. How do you teach others how to do what you've just done? How do you teach others not to make the same mistakes that you made and how to do it faster than you did? Like a a woman that I follow and a greatly admire Emma Mulqueenie. She recently won an OBE. So that's an an, an honour that's awarded by our, our Queen. And she wrote a blog post about how to get an OBE. Hmm. You know, I just want an OBE and this is how you can get one too. And I and I think we all need to do that yeah. much more. This reminds me of um, what a lot of people um, have been asking me about recently, which is um, how did you write your first book, second one on the way? How did you start a podcast? How did you start blogging? And my simple advice is if you want to write a blog, um, write, write a post every single day and it will evolve. Mm -hmm. Don't wait for perfection. Um, learn as you go use what you can with what you have um it's funny the podcasting thing i would not had any audio engineering or um audio experience ever mm -hmm. i just read and read and asked lots of questions watched lots of youtube videos getting to a point where okay i connected the dots and let's just give this a go um and and i think um that narrative i i'm really um conscious of always saying and repeating because it's really the starting bit it's the starting bit it's it's knowing that it's really going to um, change it's the quality mm -hmm. the you getting better is a constant thing it's never a yep I'm totally happy with this and my first episode mm -hmm. nailed it you know like <laughs> I don't ever think it's gonna be like that and um it's it's very much um uh sharing that um that the same feelings that they've had or they're having uh i have gone through you have gone through everyone mm -hmm. in your position has stood where you're standing at some point um yeah. so so that's really important um so let's jump into um the let's talk about the culture of busyness a little bit. Mm. Um, we did already kind of touch on this, but I'd love to expand on it a little bit more. Um, you know, this sleepless nights thing and, and um, the, the idea that um, people are, not everyone, but many people can be driven by the title that is entrepreneur um, mm -hmm. rather than the lifestyle of truly solving a need um what would you say about um how we can better uh change the 
this culture of of busyness and finding balance for the sake of mm. being kinder to yourself um because really there's only one of you and um there's not much we can do if if we're in a place of um high level stress and toxicity yeah. and all those things yeah you're right um so the first thing that springs to mind when when I hear you say that is first of all I think be, being an entrepreneur is something that other people can call you and other people can say that you're an entrepreneur but it's not something that you decide yourself that you are hmm. so you become an entrepreneur through your actions and yeah, so I just really cringe when somebody calls themselves an entrepreneur or gives me a business card saying entrepreneur or describes themselves in that way mm. because that almost is the opposite of true entrepreneurship. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's, um, yeah, it's just something that kind of rubs me up the wrong way. And the busyness thing, I think we all perpetuate the problem so by you know when somebody says how are you and you say busy so what does that mean that's not an answer and people say it as some sort of label or badge that they expect you to admire or have respect for and really you know the most respect people who I respect most are people who finish work early and and spend their whole weekends off and can take half the year off because they are extremely productive, extremely efficient and extremely focused. Yeah. So it's, I think it's partly around realising that we all have the same hours in the day and it's about priority. So you don't say no to something because you're too busy. You say no because you you're choosing not to prioritize hmm. that project or that task. You you don't not get something done because you're too busy. You don't get something done because you're not doing a good job of prioritizing or delegating or asking for help. Yeah, this very much reminds me of um, one of my favorite books of all time. <laughs> no surprise, The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, mm -hmm. which, which really speaks a lot about this stuff. And um, one, one thing that this reminded me of was when he um, says in there, um, being busy is a form of laziness, lazy thinking mm -hmm. and indiscriminate action. Um, yeah, it's I really, agree. Yeah, I love that. It taps into this uh, more of the lack of prioritizing um, area. So uh, let's uh, swing the needle a little bit and, and quickly talk about upfront. Mm -hmm. hashtag upfront uh, for those that yeah. don't know. Um, and, and I've seen your wonderful Ted talk, which I, I hugely recommend everyone watches on YouTube, but um, what is it exactly? And, and how does it work? So upfront is a response to the lack of diversity on stages at conferences all over the world. So Right now, conferences and panels are dominated by old white dudes. And this really bothers me. And this is a problem that I was experiencing often as a woman who often 
speaks in public. And <clears throat> I started to talk to people, um, men and women, and ask them the question, why are you not up there? Why are you not on stage? Why don't you appear on panels? And it is a very complex problem, but there is a there was a key pattern in the stories they shared about the physicality of being on a stage. So the physicality of standing on a stage under a spotlight, behind a you know, behind this the, the microphone is really fucking scary. Mm-hmm. Really scary. And right now there is no way that you can practice that. How do you practice being on stage in front of 500 people? You can't. So my question that I asked myself was, how can people like me, who regularly speak and we are confident and we are comfortable, how can we help others get further along that journey faster? So what if every time I gave a public talk, I shared my stage? What if I had a couch next to me where people from the audience could just chill out and just hang and feel all the scary things that happen when you're on a stage, feel their heart racing, feel their palms sweating, feel their breathing changing, but yet they're not under any pressure to perform or speak. So I tried this out for the first time in January this year and it went it went really well um we've had brilliant feedback from people who have taken part and we've had brilliant feedback from speakers so the way it works is so if you're a speaker and you want to be up front I will help you send an email to everybody who's bought a ticket at your event and you'll say hey I'm Ram looking forward to speaking to you at next week's design conference. I really care about diversity, so I'm going to share my stage. This is why. Does anybody want to share my stage? And then people will reply and you'll have a phone call, you'll send some emails, you'll choose the best people who are best suited for the experience. You all walk up on stage together. The upfront people take their place on the couch. You deliver your talk as normal. So you could be talking about climate change you could be talking about football the content is irrelevant you spend a couple of minutes at the beginning of your talk introducing why you're sharing your stage the fact that we are changing the status quo around conference attendance and conference curation and at the end they can speak if they want but actually the beauty of the idea is that they don't have to speak Mm. so this has happened at about seven conferences since january um, and with a total audience of nearly 2,000 people, if we add up all those conferences, mm. and 66 people have been up front. The youngest person was 16 and the oldest person was 60. Wow. And already some of those people have gone on to deliver a public talk where they have shared their stage. So it's a movement in a way that I'm encouraging all speakers to do this, and I'm encouraging those who take part to then be up front when they give a talk. And I'm building a community of very experienced, influential speakers, people who one day want to be on stage. Now, that might be people who are extremely shy. And, you know, this goal is a few years down the line for them. It might be people who 
often talk in public about their business or they often pitch to their team internally, but they would never put themselves forward as a keynote to talk about content beyond their product or their business. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. Yeah, so for speakers, speakers have told us it actually makes them feel less lonely and less scared mm-hmm. when they're up there because there's, you know, they're sharing their they're sharing their stage, they're sharing their power, and the people that take part have have told. I mean, every single person that's taken part has said it's increased their confidence and it's made them more likely to apply to speak at an event. And I work with everybody who takes part on a more one-to-one basis to help them on the the kind of specific confidence journey that they're on. My big vision, the grand vision, if you like, is the upfront will happen at TED and it will happen at the G20 Summit. And I won't stop until this approach is the norm for confidence curation. And I must say super relevant for this this chat is one of my good friends Georgie Bottomley runs Talk UX in Sydney and that's coming up in October and all of her keynote speakers will be up front so if there's any listeners in Sydney get in touch because there's a conference coming up where they'll be looking for people to take part. Yeah cool um I'm sure there will be lots of listeners from Sydney um, and Australia um, and really all around the world who would be able to um, at least uh, see how they could participate in some way or another. Uh, where can they find out more about this, actually? So our web website is weareupfront.com. Dot com. Yeah, cool. Yeah, let me just, yeah, weareupfront.com. Our Twitter is Upfront Global. Perfect. And... If you're if you're a speaker and you are willing to share your power, which I think every single speaker should be, then please get in touch and I can work with you to figure out how we do that. And if you organize a conference, get in touch and I can show you how Upfront will really change the dynamic of your whole event and ultimately lead to you selling more tickets, right? Which is often what's most important to people who run conferences. Yeah, win-win. Um, so real quick on that, um, on this conversation that we're having around confidence, um, how do you think, you know, what's one th- one thing that uh, people, designers, creatives, whoever, um, what, what is one thing that they can do to become more fearless and, and have more self-belief in your opinion? You just mentioned that people like you who are more confident, how did you get there? Like what's one thing do you think that, I know it's hard to pinpoint one, but if it was to be like, okay, I can try this today, what would that be? Mm-hmm. I think it's a really hard question because I think it creates this dichotomy of really confident heroes or really underconfident people who are not very capable. And I, I just think that's nonsense really. And it's, it's, it's much more about realizing that there are no there are no heroes and that everybody everybody's version of confidence and everybody's version of self-belief is different and it's about finding yours in a way that feels right for you at a pace that feels right for you Mm. and I think the one thing that everybody can do around that is have the conversation that feels really important to you so I, I really love the work of Margaret Wheatley I would recommend readers to read all of her books and she talks about really great powerful change 
starts from a tiny conversation with people who care. And I would encourage everybody listening to think about what is that thing they care about that they're not talking about Mm. and just have that conversation and raise the topic. You know, Cindy Gallup is talking to people about sex and porn every single day. You know, Mm. we have to have these conversations. Yeah, I'm talking to people about confidence every day and upfront is growing more and more traction all the time. You're talking to people about design education and how we can help young designers reach the places they want to reach. So you have to have have that conversation because ideas inside your head die. Yeah. And by giving them air and putting them out there, I'm pretty confident that that confidence and self-belief would come eventually. Yeah, that's super great advice, Lauren. I really appreciate that. Uh, now let's wind down to the home stretch. A couple of questions left here. Um, a, a question I ask most of my guests, if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to junior Lauren Curry, <laughs> you're laughing as we speak, <laughs> perhaps the Lauren finishing high school, what would you tell her? Um, just chill out a bit. <laughs> chill out, man. Chill out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds really cliche but honestly just like relax be patient perfect yeah i'm still working still working on that but that's what i would say so good so good um now who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life Uh, perhaps that person who has inspired you to think bigger and dig deeper in reaching your full potential Oh, this is such a hard question. And I try, I've really, really tried hard to choose one person and I just can't. <laughs> you're going to, you're going to say two, aren't you? Yeah, I'm so, I really, I'm such an advocate for realizing that, you know, we're all part of really messy, complex networks and relationships are, are really are all that matters. Like there's nothing exists in isolation. And I think if we can, realize that and stop acting like individuals who are on this journey on our own Um, and there's been so many people who in the past who have been instrumental to to my development and people now um it's so hard to it's so hard to choose one but I think um professor Mike Press who taught me university was the the man who introduced me to the notion that designers could do much more than make objects and that was transformative. Um, Sarah Drummond, who I started my business, Snook with. Sarah and I have been on an incredible journey together. I built Snook with her for seven years and now she is running Snook with a team of people in Glasgow and London and that relationship has been really pivotal pivotal in me understanding what I'm good at and what I'm capable of. Um, my good friend Sandy Campbell, who runs a who runs a charity that helps young boys find work in the construction agency in the construction industry. He has been a sounding board for me for the past five years and really helps me reflect and try not to make the same mistakes twice. Oh, there's so many. My friend Cassie Robinson, she has been a really consistent 
voice since university who really keeps me grounded and keeps me asking myself difficult questions. Dominic White, who's been a huge support in me developing up front, and he is a very a very intellectual thinker who challenges me to think about the long-term strategic goals behind my like obsession with doing stuff really fast. Mm-hmm. My boyfriend, Chris Watson, he is a scientist and that um, scientific approach has really flipped a lot of my understanding around design on its head, which has been super uncomfortable but very useful. So yeah, I mean, there's too there's too many to mention, but that's a very, that's a very small snapshot. Amazing, love that. So, um, what's next for you, Lauren, uh, in everything you're involved in this year and beyond? So, I've joined a new team in London a couple of months ago called Good Lab, and we are working with twelve of the UK's biggest charities to build a new economic model around fundraising. So that is very exciting. We're designing a a three-year program that will really transform the charity sector. Um, And I do that four days a week. And on the fifth day, I'm really focused on Upfront. And as I said, my vision for Upfront is to scale it and grow it as much as I can so that it becomes the norm around conference curation. And yeah, just continue my battle of trying to chill out and enjoy, just enjoy it. Fantastic. Uh, Lauren, how can listeners get in touch with you online? I'm sure you're going to get a lot of people uh, wanting to chat more about this, these topics that we've covered. So uh, how can they reach you? Oh, that would be lovely. So my website is redjotter.com. You can sign up there to my mailing list. Follow me on Twitter at redjotter. And my email and all my contact details are on my site. Perfect. I'll link all that up on the post of this uh, podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for your time, Lauren. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show. You are doing remarkable things. And I look forward to uh, seeing more of the magic in the near future. Thank you very much. And thank you for doing what you do. I hope you all enjoyed that honest and powerful session. Lauren really challenges the status quo in so many ways, and I'm sure you all learned something from listening to this one. Now, a little teaser for the next episode. He is a fellow Aussie and major household name on the international entrepreneurial scene. In 2013, he launched his now hugely popular digital magazine called Founder by young entrepreneurs for young entrepreneurs. In it, he's interviewed the likes of Richard Branson, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Tony Robbins, Gary Vaynerchuk, and many more. I'm not going to give too much away. It's pretty obvious who it is, but you won't want to miss this one. So keep your eyes peeled for the release in two weeks time. Before you race off, as mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I highly recommend you check out FreshBooks if you're a small business owner, especially if you're a freelancer. I wouldn't recommend it if I didn't feel it'd be valuable for you. Another feature that I love about FreshBooks is that it sends late payment reminders to your clients automatically, which means you're not chasing them down to follow them up. To be brutally honest, us designers and creatives are simply not numbers people. 
and this cloud-based accounting platform was created for us. FreshBooks is offering a month of unrestricted use to all Giant Thinkers listeners totally free right now. To claim your free month, go to freshbooks.com slash giant and enter Giant Thinkers in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, that's freshbooks.com slash giant. The clickable link is in this post. Thank you once again for spending your time with me on the airwaves. I truly appreciate each and every one of you. And I encourage you to reflect on Lauren's messages and think about what your version of better looks like. What's that one thing you can do today that will bring you closer to that vision? Be well, be kind to each other and have a phenomenal rest of the week. 